is Pro Rata, where we take just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. Sponsored by Bridge Bank. Be bold. Venture wisely. I'm Dan Mac. On today's show, President Trump gets called out for a fake tweet, and Jack Dorsey gets to stick around as Twitter's CEO. But first, coronavirus hits the gig economy. So there is no bigger economic story right now than coronavirus, with the stock markets falling 2,000 points at today's open, prompting a 15-minute trading pause in order to tamp down on some of the panic selling. In individual workplaces, the worries have manifested themselves more in the form of business travel bans and work-from-home edicts. And that includes at places like Uber and Lyft, where engineers and managers can now bring their laptops home. But for Uber and Lyft drivers, it's not that easy. Their options are either to keep picking up passengers or not getting paid. And that's true for most other so-called gig economy companies, where drivers and delivery workers are treated as independent contractors rather than as employees. Obviously, this isn't sitting too well with some of these workers, particularly since their jobs involve interacting with people who could, in theory, be infected. And there are only so many Clorox wipes you can buy to wipe down your car. And I kind of mean that literally. Those things are becoming golden ticket level rare. So Uber did announce on Friday that it will compensate drivers for up to 14 days if they're diagnosed with coronavirus or put under quarantine. And Lyft is reportedly doing something similar. But those are pretty tiny concessions affecting a minuscule number of people. Lots of issues here. Worker safety for sure, customer safety too, and how those two interacting could engender the spread of coronavirus. If you think about an infected driver and all the people he or she picks up, Plus, how providing sick leave, if these companies were to actually do it or allow people to get compensation for staying home for a while, how it could impact the giant labor fight over whether or not gig economy workers should legally qualify as employees. So lots to dig into, which we will do in 20 seconds with The New York Times' Mike Isaac. But first, this. Bridgebank believes in the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors, those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. That's why Bridgebank has been dedicated to providing financial solutions to sponsor-backed emerging technology and growth companies for nearly two decades through its national network of banking teams and offices. Bridgebank is a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridgebank. Be bold. Venture wisely. We're joined now by Mike Isaac, New York Times tech reporter and author of Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber. There are lots of gig economy companies out there from Uber to Amazon with Flex, etc. Is there a company from your perspective that so far is kind of taking the lead when it comes to responding to coronavirus? Yeah, Uber was not the company to create the 1099, the contract labor, but I think they've become sort of synonymous with the gig economy. And I think they realized that because immediately when folks started saying, you know, how is coronavirus going to start affecting our labor force, they have actually been the ones to say, okay, we're going to think through some of the ways that folks can deal with this. And so at least uh, on Friday, I talked to a few people over there and they said they were thinking through how they're going to deal with this, how if people are quarantined, their driver's going to react. And just that evening, they said they're actually going to start paying folks based on a few limitations that they're actually held for a period of 14 days. And they're still working through the details. Correct me if I'm wrong here. So this is, as you said, a very limited number of people. You have to either be diagnosed with coronavirus or you need to be under quarantine. But even that small number of people, if an Uber driver qualifies, they still don't get medical benefits from Uber, right? They're still paying any potential medical costs out of pocket. Yeah, that's right. The whole 
epidemic beyond it being, you know, very scary thing really lays clear the difference between what it means to have a full-time job and what it means to be a contract worker. And as soon as something sort of devastating happens to the economy, happens to how people get around, happens to just these sort of, as Sequoia put it recently, these black swans that we can't account for, how does that affect your job? And for hundreds of thousands of people, it might mean not being able to drive anyone for a long period of time. And so Uber really has to grapple with not only the bad PR around that, but how this is going to just work out for their business and how it's going to work out for the people that rely on Uber as a regular income. We hear Lyft is following a similar policy. The quarantine part, is that required quarantine? In other words, somebody basically needs either a doctor's note or to have been told by local authorities that they're being quarantined. And I ask that, Mike, in comparison to, for example, if you or I wake up with a fever and a cough, we've been told don't go outside. That's a self-quarantine. I assume those people don't count, right? So those people are forced to either work and thus put themselves and others at risk or not work and not get paid. Yeah, that's right. So a few things. When I asked about it last week, it seemed like to me they don't quite fully have all the details worked out. You know, I asked how much of these people are going to get paid. It's not quite sure. Is there going to be a fixed amount? It's going to vary by market. So I think they really realized that the questions were coming hard and fast. They had to put something out there. And to be fair to them, there's just as much sort of confusion at the very top of the country coming around and what people should do, depending on whether you listen to Trump or the CDC at a given moment. So I think a lot of companies are trying to take cues from how they're officially supposed to act, but at the same time, figuring out as they go along. And so, you know, this is kind of a Band-Aid in some ways, but I imagine in the coming days, they'll actually give us more details around who this can help. And it probably is not going to be an enormous number, at least right off the bat. Do we have any information yet, any quantitative information yet on what the coronavirus spread has done in terms of gig economy usage? And I'm particularly thinking of ride hail. In other words, are fewer people getting in Ubers and Lyfts? I haven't seen any raw numbers out there yet, and the companies are being very tight-lipped with how this is affecting them, but I have been sort of doing some reporting, and it sort of varies. On the one hand, last week, I talked to someone who's connected to DoorDash, who said that DoorDash orders are going through the roof. Well, some people don't want to go to a supermarket, don't want to go to a restaurant, or and or self-quarantine. Exactly. And again, this points out the, the sort of disparity. If you can afford a $100 DoorDash order or whatever it costs you to get dinner that night, you can do that, you know, and won't want to go outside of your house. But the person who can't afford it is going to be the person driving food to your house and sort of risking their neck to do that. So there's companies like that that apparently seem to be affected positively. Initially, Uber, I had heard, you know, there where a number of rideshare was going up just because, again, this is affecting public transit and how close people want to be to each other. But I think over time, I think they don't want to get too optimistic about that because if people are told to then stop going to work, stop going out of the house or whatever, that that number could go down. So they're being very careful with how they're showing this is going to affect them. But I will say on the next uh, earnings call or whatever, I'm very curious if they say, the line that I've been hearing a lot of these uh, from these companies, which is, uh, you know, the unknown impact of the coronavirus could potentially affect future earnings. So I guess I'm watching out just as closely. Well, let me ask about that future earnings and circle back to where we started to end this, which from your perspective, which is all sorts of things well beyond companies like Uber and Lyft and DoorDash. But do you think is this ultimately going to prove the tipping point when it comes to the labor fight? Because these companies are going to have to make a decision, essentially, on whether these people are legally employees or not or how they term them. They're going to either have to give them the benefit 
benefits of being employees or not. And they're going to have to make that decision soon. Of everything that we've sort of seen over the past 10, 15 years in Uber's history and the companies that have proliferated since then, this seems like the most clear-cut explanation of how these people different from the full-time employees. You, At the end of the day, you don't have medical benefits. You don't have some of the very clear protections that full-time employees do. You don't think they're going to get some of those that the companies, and maybe they financially just can't, neither Uber or Lyft makes any money from a profit perspective. You don't think they're going to alter that in order to essentially save their workforce, potentially? I don't know if it's too financially devastating for them to flip it entirely, but I do think the thing that I've been thinking for a while is like they will get to some sort of compromise or middle ground that Uber is kind of pushing behind the scenes, like a, a sort of hybrid, not quite employee, but not completely protectionless 1099 worker. And they're still kind of pushing that in this fight that they're doing in California with AB5. So perhaps we get at least closer to that. It's not the whole hog. And I still don't know if they'll ever be able to treat laborers as employees just because of the nature of their business. But I do think this will push us at least a lot closer. Thank you to Mike Isaac, New York Times tech reporter and author of Super Pump, The Battle for Uber, which you can get on Amazon and if they still exist, bookstores. My final two right after this. The equity fund resources group at Bridge Bank is a central hub for the venture capital and private equity communities. Offering banking services for funds, partners, and their portfolio companies, Bridge Bank's financial solutions are designed for the entire innovation ecosystem and include creative credit solutions, robust treasury and cash management capabilities, and a suite of international banking products. Bridge Bank is a division of Western Alliance Bank. Be bold, venture wisely. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is Twitter, which for the first time ever has applied a manipulated media tag to a tweet, something it recently pledged to do in an effort to fight misinformation. And of equal note, it was applied to a tweet first shared by White House social media guru Dan Scavino, which was then retweeted by President Trump. At issue is selective editing of a Saturday speech by Joe Biden, in which he said, quote, we can only reelect Donald Trump, end quote. Or at least you'd think that's the end of the quote if you only follow President Trump on Twitter. Biden's full statement was actually, quote, we can only reelect Donald Trump if, in fact, we get engaged in this circular firing squad here. It's got to be a positive campaign, end quote. So kudos to Twitter for trying to counter this blatant misinformation, criticism to Trump for deceiving people, and a caveat, since Twitter only acted after the video had been viewed more than five million times. And finally, yet another item related to Twitter, CEO Jack Dorsey is sticking around. The company this morning disclosed a ceasefire with activist investor Elliott Associates, which have been arguing that Twitter requires a full-time CEO, or more specifically, a CEO who doesn't spend half of his time running payment company Square and possibly half his year exploring new technologies in Africa. Now, Elliott doesn't appear to have gotten any of what it wanted in terms of Dorsey's focus and time, but it did convince Twitter to initiate a $2 billion stock buyback take a $1 billion investment from private equity firm Silver Lake and name three new board directors, including one from Elliott. The bottom line here is that this is the second time in 2020 where Elliott has pushed for a big name CEO to go. The first was AT&T's Randall Stevenson, but where Elliott ultimately got other concessions that might have been what it really wanted all along. You know, short-term moves that improve the stock price. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great national napping day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata Podcast.